Well, for those of you who are new to Revolution Church, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. That's the way we like to study the Word of God, a book at a time, one verse at a time, and just go through it the way Jesus said it. And again, I just want to refresh your memory that if you have any questions, you can text them in anytime. And at the end of my message, I will uh, answer them for you or do my best anyway. All right, so if you want to open your Bible or your device, we're in Luke chapter 7. And I'll be the reader this morning. It says, soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the, be the bearer stood still, and, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. For fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through all the whole, whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is inspired and breathed by the Holy Spirit of God. I pray that that same Holy Spirit this morning that fills our hearts would connect our brains with our hearts so that we could truly comprehend and understand what the word of God is saying to us this morning. And we pray that Jesus would receive all the glory. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So when Abraham Lincoln was shot and assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, a lot of people don't know this, but that Abraham Lincoln's casket was put on a train that was named after him, called the Abraham Lincoln. It was the equivalent of Air Force One before they had jet planes, you know. And so this train traveled all around the country. It started in Washington, D.C. It went up the East Coast, all across New York and the upper Midwest, and finally, when it went to uh, Lincoln's birthplace in Illinois, and that's where his body was buried. But at, at intersections of many towns all along the way, this took, this took several months for this train journey to happen. Um, people, it would stop in towns, and people would have prayer vigils and candlelight services, and they would pray for the family, and they would give thanks to God for Abraham Lincoln and all that he had done. And this was a part of history a lot of people don't realize. This was an amazing funeral procession that took place on a train. And there was over 300 people traveling with this procession everywhere that it went. Well, today we're, we see a funeral procession. It's not quite as big as this one, but it was, it was pretty big. And this passage, we're going to divide up in just three short points here this morning. First of all, we see the sad situation of this young man passing and leaving his widow mother behind. Number two, we see the compassionate Christ. And thirdly, we'll look at the righteous reaction. So first of all, it says soon afterward, and Luke, he's, he has an economy of words. He doesn't have extra words in there for fluff. He's saying this for a reason. Soon after what should be the question? Well, soon after one of the greatest sermons ever preached in the world, if not the greatest, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, and in this case, in Luke, he preached the Sermon on the Plain. This is where he taught people to love their enemies, to, uh, to overcome Good, evil with good and all the things he taught on the Sermon on the Mount and how to behave as Christians once we're in the kingdom. 
So after this, and also it was soon after the miracle with the centurion. Remember the centurion had a servant that he valued and loved dearly and he was dying and Jesus went and healed him. And so right after these things, this whole talk about authority and Jesus presenting the kingdom, right after this is when all this happens. So Luke is connecting the dots here, that this story is significant to what we just learned last week. He went to a town called Nain. If you really want to be technical, it's Nain, but I don't speak Hebrew that well. (laughs) It's approximately 25 miles. This in those days would have been approximately an 11-hour walk. And um, it was a very small town of approximately 200 people. But when these people are walking out, this is basically a funeral procession. They're carrying on what's called a a beer, which is not like a light beer or a Michelob. This is a thing you carry uh, a dead body on almost. uh, And sometimes they're on wheels if you're wealthy. Usually they're carried by pallbearers if you were not. And so on the west side of this town, there were caves. And in these caves is where people would bury their bodies. And so this funeral procession was out. So this, this young man had probably been dead for a few days. And so they would have a wake, very similar in some of our culture, especially from Louisiana, that would go on for a few days. The body was wrapped and embalmed. And so that's the picture I want you to get in your head, that this funeral procession is heading out of town. And then it says that soon afterwards, his disciples were, and the great crowd went with them. So picture the 12 with Jesus, but not just the 12. It doesn't just say a crowd. It says a great crowd. And usually when the Bible says crowd versus great crowd, we're talking into hundreds, possibly thousands. I think in this situation for a, an 11-hour walk, it probably was maybe more like 150. We're just speculating, right? But don't picture just Jesus and 12. Picture possibly 150, 160 people, maybe more, walking this journey. And, and it, there's going to be a convergence here. It says, and as they drew near to the gate of the town, so usually there'd be two big prominent buildings at the front of the town, and what you walked between to enter that town where the road led in was called the gate. It doesn't mean there's always physically an actual gate there. Sometimes there was, sometimes there wasn't. A town of 200, there probably was not. But behold, this man who died was being carried out. So the funeral procession's going one way, and it says of those, that town of 200, that a, a large number of them joined them. So let's say half the town came, came out for this funeral procession. So you got 100 people walking this way and 150 people trying to get in, and at the gate they meet. So the funeral procession stops because this crowd's trying to get in, this, tries, this crowd's trying to get out. Try to get all this in your, in your mind as you imagine what this is going on. And this wasn't just her, one of her sons. This was her only son. That factor is important. Because she was a widow. Her husband passed away. We don't know what age she was. She only was old enough to have one son. So possibly she was on the younger side. We don't really know. But it was a considerable crowd from this town of 200. So again, maybe half the people, maybe all the people. If you live there in a small town, you know how that could work. And so this is a really sad situation. Because elderly women who were widows in this culture weren't very well taken care of. People especially under Roman oppression, were struggling to take care of themselves. They were struggling to feed and put food in the mouths of their own children. They were struggling to pay their own taxes, which were exorbitant. People always felt like they were behind with the Romans and the Romans and the tax collectors. That's why they were hated so much because everybody seemed to have a tax debt that was growing with interest. 
And so taking care of widows was like, well, I would, but I can't hardly feed my own kids. And so people had to depend on their own children. Widows had to depend on their sons, mostly because they were the breadwinners of the family. And the only breadwinner in her family is dead. This gets to be a desperate situation. A lot of times what widows would do to survive, they would go out in the fields and glean. Do you, does anybody remember a couple famous widows in the Old Testament that were gleaning? Who? Ruth and Naomi, right? And so that's what this future of this woman was probably looking like, going out into the field every day and just picking up barely handfuls of what she could and eating grain from the field. Maybe, maybe enough to go home and bake some bread. But to ever eat fish again, probably not going to happen. To get other nutrition, it's probably not looking good. Many women were forced to do ungodly things to survive. So the plight of a widow in the first century was not very good. So this is a sad situation. Her son is dead, and, and she's walking out in this funeral procession, about to bury him on the west side of town in a cave. And she's thinking life is not looking very good right now. But in steps the compassionate Christ. Amen. Jesus shows compassion on her. It says, and when the Lord saw her. Now, it could have said when Jesus saw her. It could have said when the Christ saw her. It could have said anything. It could have just said he saw her. But Luke specifically says the Lord. It's showing that the one in control, the one who knows everything, the one who has a heart of compassion, that's the one who saw her. Okay? And it doesn't say when he spoke with her. Right? It, it, Luke is specifically honing in an idea that not only does he's not just talking about physical sight oh there she is no he saw her he saw her situation he saw how sad it was he saw the dead son he saw into her heart he saw the solution jesus sees and knows everything this this is a hyperlink i believe back to a famous old testament lady hagar remember who she was forgive my voice we just got back from the basketball tournament and I did lots of yelling. So, um, so Abraham and Sarah, husband and wife, called by God to come out of their country land to start a new grace of people and to go into the promised land. And Hagar was an Egyptian servant that they had. And God had promised them a son in their 40s. No son. 50s, no son. 60s, 70s, 80s. Now they're in their 90s, still no son. And Sarah's like, you know what, Abraham, I got an idea. I've got this young, fertile servant girl. Why don't you make a child with her since we can't seem to have kids? And let's help God with keeping his promise. You know, God doesn't need any help, by the way. You all know that, right? And when we try to help God out with certain things and try to step in and do things wrong, it only gets worse. So Abraham gave in on that, uh, that temptation, and Hagar conceived. And when she became pregnant, Sarah, whose idea it was, became jealous and mad at her because she's pregnant. Well, Hagar didn't help the situation because she's like, oh, look here, see that baby bump? You know, she's all bragging about it and throwing it in her face. And so the hostility between these women, two birds in the same nest was not looking good. So she kicked her out of town. And she said, and so Abraham said, you need to leave. And he gave her a pot of water and puts her out in the desert. Way to go, Abraham. Good job. So she's out in the desert and she's like in a bad situation and she cries out to God and here's what the scripture says about this. In Genesis 16, 11, it says, An angel of the Lord, and notice it says, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. Who is that? This is Jesus, okay? When you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that means when God chooses to become flesh and, mess, and he becomes his own messenger. So God sent other angels as messenger, but God's going to be his own messenger in a situation. 
And he said to her, Hagar, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. So he's already prophesying what's going to happen. And you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened uh, to your affliction. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. I saw God, God saw me, and he saw into the inner depths of my soul. And she came up with a name that's only used here in the Bible, El Roy, the God of seeing. I don't know what you're dealing with today, but know this, God sees it. And that God sees more than you do. He sees it from all angles. Uh, Our God sees all the details of your sad situation. He understands and he has compassion for you. Even if no one else does, even if you feel all alone in this situation, understand that God has compassion and he understands what you're going through. He sees the big picture that you cannot see and he has a plan. You have to trust him with that. Even though you don't fully understand, he knows the future. Most importantly, he sees the future and what is on the other side of your situation. So whatever it is, you need to give it to God. There's a prayer that someone prayed that worth quoting here this morning. I don't know that's, that nobody really knows who to attribute to. I asked for strength and God gave me difficulties to make me strong. I asked for wisdom and God gave me problems to solve. I asked for courage and God gave me dangers to overcome. I asked for love and God gave me troubled people to help. My prayers were answered. See, the connection here between um, your troubles, there is a connection with the compassion and difficult situations. You say, well, God, help me to be compassionate to other people. And then God brings in these troubles. You're like, wait, wait, hold on, God. I'm wanting to just be compassionate to other people. Well, hold on. Listen to what the scripture says about that. In 2 Corinthians 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all what? He is the God of all comfort. Listen to what he teaches us here. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the, the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a mouthful. But there's a hurting world out there. Do you know what God does to make you compassionate? He makes you hurt. God does bring pain into our lives. He allows it for a reason so that we, when we receive the Holy Spirit's comfort in our own heart, then we can take that and give that to someone else. And you could say, you know, it's one thing to say to somebody going through a hard time, hey, you know, I'm really sorry you're dealing with that. It's another thing to say, I've been there, sister. I've been there, brother. I know what you're feeling because I just went through this whenever, last year. There was a, um, a missionary and his wife in uh, the Congo. And one day when he had left town to go visit and preach the gospel in another town, one of the hostile tribes came in and gang raped the missionary's wife. Just devastated her. And they packed up everything and left the field and came home. And she was depressed and discouraged for a long time, dealing with the trauma that had happened to her. And she just had a really crisis of faith there, like, God, why? We were serving you. We're over there telling people, we're telling this tribe about you, and you allowed this to happen to me. Why, God? Why would you let this happen? And she struggled for almost a year. And then she got back involved in their mother church there, and she was starting to serve. And they came to her and they said, hey, we're having a ladies' retreat with other churches, and we want you to speak. 
And she's like, okay, I, I, I will do it. And she wasn't asked to speak on anything related to what had happened to her. She just asked to speak on a certain topic. But she got up to speak, and she felt like the Lord saying, tell them what happened. Tell them what happened. So she broke down in front of this, several hundred women and told them what had happened to her, which a lot of people, not everybody knew. And she was wondering, God, why do you want me to tell them what happened? And after the this, this service was over, a mother and a 14-year-old daughter came up there and said, we are so thankful you shared this story because my daughter went through that same thing. And your words encouraged her. God allows bad things to happen sometimes so that when we experience the comfort of God, we can put our arm around somebody else and say, hey, I've been there. I feel your pain. To know what other people, you know, you can have somebody who's never been way through and say you just don't understand and maybe you don't verbalize those words. But when someone has been through it, there's a brotherhood, there's a sisterhood, there's a camaraderie that we can share in that same suffering. Um, Tim Keller said this, Christianity is the only religion where God sees the suffering of his creation and he chooses to suffer with us. No other religion on the planet teaches that. We have a God who not only sees our suffering, he entered into the suffering with us. And I don't know why God allows suffering all the time. I don't have an answer for all that all the time. But I know this. It's not because he doesn't care. That he cares enough to suffer with us and to take all of our pain on the cross. Not only does he suffer for our sufferings, he's suffered for our sins. And by his stripes we are healed. All the guilt all the pain, all the trauma is healed on the cross. We have a God who suffers with us and he loves us. And this is the greatest act of compassion the world has ever known. And that the heart of Christ is in us. And so we have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to show this miraculous, supernatural compassion to other people. Even when we don't feel like it. Even when times are hard. There's times when we're like, well, I can't go. I can't do this. And yet the Holy Spirit of God, there's no other explanation, gives you the power and the strength to step up and to be like Christ. He had compassion on her. It's interesting, this word compassion, it's used 12 times in the New Testament. 10 times it's used of Jesus. Of course, the number 10 is number of completion. He was completely compassionate. But it's interesting, the other two times that it's used, one is the good Samaritan, not the good Jew, the good Samaritan, the person that everybody was racially profiling and hated. He's the one that showed compassion on the guy who had been robbed on the side of the road. He's the one that put him on his own animal, put him in the town, spent his own money to put up on a hotel and to feed him. And he said, if there's any other expenses, I'll pay for that. Out of his own pocket, he showed compassion on someone who didn't even like him. And then the other time that this word compassion is used, the, the Greek word is splankta. It means like something in your gut, okay? The word even sounds like it, doesn't it? And uh, it says that the father, when he saw his prodigal son, the son who had took all of his inheritance, who had li liquidated his, 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 his uh, finances and ran off and spent it on wild living, when he comes back, he wasn't, well, I told you so. I knew you'd come running back, you know? Who do you think you are? What do you want? You want some more money? Is that what? Did he do any of that? No, he had splankna. He had compassion. He hurt on the inside for his son and he ran to him and he put his arms around him. He put on the biggest party and welcomed him home 
and all was forgiven. That, that is compassion. It says he had compassion on her, and he said, do not weep. Now, that's interesting. Uh, this is one time you don't want to be like Jesus. Please don't show up at a funeral and tell people not to cry, okay? Jesus has a reason why he's saying do not weep, because what? He knows he's going to bring them back, okay? We saw Jesus weeping with Lazarus, right? So he's not saying weeping is bad. The Bible says we mourn, but we just don't mourn at, in the same way as those who have no hope. So, but he tells her just not to weep. You can stop weeping because I'm about to perform a miracle here. And then he came up and he touched the beard, the, the gurney that they were carrying the dead body on. He didn't notice he didn't touch the sun. He's touching the instrument that, that transports death. I think there's some symbolism on here. I mean, many times he's touched people. Many times he spoke the word. Jesus heals different ways every time, right? And so he and the bearers, they stood still while they're like, what's going on here? We're trying to get a funeral going on here. You're interrupting. You know, if you imagine like if a funeral procession was heading and all the cars have their headlights on and you jump out in front of the car and say, hey, stop, stop, stop. And you go up to the back of the hearse and you open the door. I mean, everybody's getting really creeped out here thinking, this, what is this guy doing? And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And there's a similarity with Lazarus' story. Some of you know where I'm going with this. When he went to the grave, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And one great preacher has said, if he had just said, come forth, they all would have come forth. So he's being really specific. So young man, I say to you, not all the dead people out there in the caves, I say to you, arise. And of course that happened. The dead man sat up and he began to speak. Now what's really interesting about this, this body's embalmed. It's wrapped. It's not mummified, but they'd still wrapped it in, in, in ointment and things like that. And usually they wrapped the body and then they would wrap the head this way to hold the jaw closed, just out of respect, you know, and close the eyes and make sure the jaw wasn't sitting there open. So this guy's speaking, hey, thanks for bringing me back to life. You know, <laughs> he's got his jaw wrapped. He's sitting up. He's mummified. It was kind of like when Lazarus came for him by the tomb. He was probably like, you know, like that or something. I'm not sure. But you have to visualize what's going on in this crazy situation here. Um, and then he gave him to his mother. So he helped him get down. I don't know if he unwrapped it. But he escorts him over to his mom. Just like this personal touch. It wasn't like, Hey, everybody, did you see that? Look at that miracle. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, he, he takes time. He realizes this miracle is not done until I present this son right back to his mom. And it's interesting that he spoke. I think Luke, being a physician, wants to make sure people didn't know that the body just moved. My son used to work in a, a morgue, uh, not a morgue, funeral home, and be around dead bodies. And he said that they've been known to, to twitch, like do weird things. Some of that's part of decomposition, and things like that, but uh, some people, if, if Jesus didn't say here that he spoke, people would say, well, the body sat up just because it was a, a, a reflex, you know, post-mortem reflex. And they'll say, no, he sat up and he spoke. He talked. We're just letting you know that this guy really was alive. And Jesus so, showed compassion in when people hurt the most, and that's with death. Death is not fun. Death, even though we know things are coming, even though we know some people get elderly and we know that it could happen any day now, you still don't get ready for it. You still hurts when it happens. You still see all the things. And compassion in those times is when compassion matters most. Speaking of Abraham Lincoln, um, the guy that shot him was John Wilkes Booth. John Wilkes Booth had a couple of sons. One of them was Edwin Booth. Prior to the assassination, Edwin Booth had a, a successful acting career. He was coming up you know, in the plays and all the theaters that are going up. And he was 
becoming successful, but when his dad assassinated the president, Edwin's name became mud and nobody wanted to hire him. And now he's discouraged, he's depressed, he's going broke. Nobody will hire him to be an actor. He's trying to figure out what he could do to make a living. And one day he's in a train station and a young man stumbled and fell in front of a train and he reached out at a risk of his own life and pulled him back from the train and saved his life. And that young man was Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert. What a crazy coincidence. But he, at his, at his own risk of his own life, he showed compassion on someone who was in a dying, dead, deadly situation and showed compassion on him. He could have said, oh, none of my business. You know, and stand back and just watch it happen. But he showed compassion. And Christ did so much more. He stepped in a situation, not at the risk of his own life, but at the cost of his own life. You know, last week we learned about the centurion. The centurion sent messages to Jesus and said, hey, my servant is sick. Would you come heal them? And then here we have the widow who didn't ask. Jesus just walks up and, and heals her son. He saw her situation. Next week, spoiler alert here, John the Baptist will send messengers to Jesus saying, hey, I'm in prison. And Jesus leaves him there. And he dies. My point is, you can't put Jesus in a box. You can't say, well, you weren't healed because you didn't ask. There's people who have asked and did not receive. And there's people who didn't ask and, got, and received the healing. There's all different ways Jesus is going to do what Jesus wants to do. And what's unfortunate is we, have, we live in a world today where people preach, if you just have enough faith, you'll be healed. John the Baptist didn't have enough faith. Jesus said, man, there's nobody born of women greater than John the Baptist. And yet he sat in prison and got his head cut off. And here's a widow not asking Jesus for anything, and Jesus steps in. Aren't you glad there's times you like Jesus steps in when you're not even asking for you and he does the miraculous for you? Jesus does what Jesus wants to do, and he shows compassion how he wants to show compassion. So we saw the sad situation. We saw the compassionate Christ. And now to our final point here, we see the righteous reaction, the righteous reaction to this miracle. Fear sees them all. Now, I don't think they're like scared, like, oh, I hope he doesn't touch me. No, it was like, oh. We use the word awesome too much. I know I'm guilty of that. But like when you see something you can't explain, you're like, what just happened here? That's, that is awesome. When you like stand in awe, like I, people, you don't see people raised from the dead every day. This was a true miracle, and they saw this with their own eyes. And of course, who did they give credit to? They glorified God, which is what Jesus wanted them to do. And it's interesting, the language says a great prophet, but the article A is not in the, in the Greek. I believe the article could be the great prophet has arisen among us. Because Moses, who was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, said God is going to raise up a prophet greater than me. And other great prophets came, but everybody agreed, well, yeah, they're good, but they're not Moses. <laughs> they raised the dead, but they didn't part the sea. They didn't take down the biggest kingdom on the planet, Egypt. They didn't do the ten plagues. You know, everybody, nobody seems to be as good as Moses. And then Jesus came along, and they're like, oh, finally, this is the great prophet. This is the one who is that God's been promising to be the greater than Moses. Now, it's interesting that in this town of Nain, or Nain, Right nearby in that same area, Elijah went to a widow and raised her son. And then his predecessor, who took up his mantle, Elisha, went to a town where the widow had a son and raised him up. Do you see a pattern here? Jesus is saying, hey, 
You think Elijah's good? You think Elijah's good? Watch what I can do. I'm, I'm even greater than them. I'm, I'm not going to do what they did. I'm going to do miracles that, that far surpass that. The widow, this was her only son. That's a detail that's important because God sent his only son. And not only could Jesus raise the dead, he would raise himself from the dead. And that's what Jesus is pointing to with these, this miracle. And this miracle being in this place at this time. So fear seized them, they glorified God, and they said, God has visited his people. I don't know that they truly know what they're saying. I don't think they're acknowledging that Jesus is God in the flesh, although he is. This was a common phrase, just like Mary said, you know, I'm pregnant because God has visited me. And so when God does a miracle, he intervenes, that's called a visitation. But I don't think they realize what they're saying, that no, he really, God has literally visited here. That's what Matthew 123 says, when the angel says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. When people study the Bible and say, well, Jesus was the son of God, but he wasn't God, they don't understand the Trinity. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equally God. There is no lesser God. There's no demigod. There's not, and the Bible says over and over again in Isaiah in Jeremiah, that I am the Lord, there is no other God besides me. So one God expressed in three persons. And so that's what Jesus' name means. It doesn't mean a God with us, it means God with us. So that was their reaction. Let me ask you this morning, what is your reaction to the good news of Jesus coming into the world and raising the dead? Not all of us will go through divorce. Not all of us will experience bankruptcy. Not everybody experiences cancer but everybody, 100%, will experience death. It is the common enemy that we all have. We don't like death. It, it's not part of the circle of life. You know, forget the, the Lion King. It's, it's not a beautiful thing. Part of the, Jesus hates it. That's why when the, Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, he, he roared against it. Like, oh, I hate death. I can't wait to conquer it. Because every time it happens, we're like, this isn't right. If it was part of the circle of life, we'd be like, oh, that's a cool thing, just passing on. You know, people say the craziest things at funerals. I remember going to one of my uncle's funerals who loved to bowl, and they're like, oh, yeah, he's bowling in heaven now. And I'm like, I was only like 14. I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And, you know, we try to justify with all kinds of weirdo stories and, for, and that everybody's in heaven. Nobody goes to hell because, you know, because everybody's better than Hitler, so we're all going to heaven, which is not, not true. Last night, around midnight, I'm pumping gas on a drive home from Dallas, and uh, they're playing oldies music outside. And it was one of the, the song was, I thought it was fitting for this morning, is oldies song, you, you remember this, where, oh, where, to, where can my baby be? The Lord has taken her away from me. And uh, it goes on to say, I can't remember the exact words, it says, I want to see her again, so I got to be good, so I can go to heaven and be my baby again. You don't go to heaven by being good. <laughs> doesn't matter what the oldies say, okay? That's what our culture says. You've got to be a good person. But the Bible says there's none righteous, what? No, not one. There's none that seeks after God. For by grace you save through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. And yet most Christian denominations say, be a good boy, be a good girl, keep the Ten Commandments, keep the sacraments, you'll go to heaven. And I'm like, what Bible are you reading? People say, well, there's so many different denominations because there's so many different interpretations. How many ways can you interpret not by works? Not by works. So 
When we hear that Jesus can raise the dead, our common enemy, what's your reaction to that? We tend to want to kick the can down the road. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about it. I, I, I won't say I enjoy preaching funerals, but in a way I look forward to sharing the gospel at funerals. Because this is the one time I can get everybody to say, hey, right here, death is real. You see this casket? It's real. And this could be you. And I, as a pastor, I've done more funerals for people under 40 than I've done for people over 40. Part of that was because I was a youth pastor for a number of years and I did funerals for teenagers. And uh, so don't think, oh, well, that's later. I'll, I'll, I'll think about death. I'll think about dying when I'm in my 70s, 80s. You may not make it there. And people die young all, all the time. So when you understand that the only one who can raise you from the dead so that you can live for eternity and not perish and spend eternity in hell is Jesus Christ. And he's proven that he's the one that conquers death because he does it in miracles and he raised himself. Their reaction was glory to God. Some people's reaction, well, I don't think that happened. That was 2,000 years ago. That's just fables and legends. You can believe what you choose to believe. And it says in verse 17, in this report, what report? The good news about him raising the dead, it spread. It went viral without an internet, okay? It burned up the phones when there were no telephones. How did it spread? People were talking. And the only way today in this crazy day that we live in that the good news of Jesus Christ is going to spread is if you and I talk and we open up our mouths and we have sometimes uncomfortable conversations. Because we get nervous, we, don't, we get scared, but just say, hey, can I share something important with you? When I was this old, whatever age, someone shared with me about the love of Christ and why he died and how he died for me and all my sins. And, and, and I don't know exactly what happened, but I know that day changed my life and that all my guilt is gone. And I'm not perfect today, but I just wanted to share that with you that God's forgiveness is real because I've experienced it. He died for me and you. He was buried and he rose again. And I truly believe that. And I just need to share that with you. It, it could be that simple. But the reason the word spreads is because people take time to talk. So he said, I say to you, arise. He was specific. And someday Jesus is not going to be spe so specific. He's going to say, arise to all of his children, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the heavens with them, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The Bible talks about two types of resurrections. In Daniel 12, Old Testament here, hundreds of years before Christ rose from the dead, it says, and many of those who sleep, nice way of saying dead, sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, don't believe that hell is eternal. They believe you just go to sleep or you die. Well, then how is this contempt lasting forever? How does the lake of fire burn forever and ever? Which one will you wake up to? Will you wake up to Christ saying, come up here, like he says in the book of Revelation, and you'll be resurrected to eternal life? Or will it be at the great white throne when he says, he calls the, everyone out of the dead, and the sea that gave up their dead, and they stand before the great white throne. And in that case, everyone is judged according to Revelation, according to their works. So I thought we weren't saved by works. That's right, you're not. But if you don't trust in Christ's work on the cross, you can be judged by your own works. And guess what happens at the great white throne? Everybody is sentenced to eternal hell. There's nobody at the great white throne that says, oh, well, you get a pass. So which resurrection will you 
experience. John 5, 24 says, truly, this is Jesus speaking here. He says, I say to you, and I, I want you to take this personally as if he was here speaking to you. Whoever hears my word, like you have this morning, and believes, trust in him, the father that sent me, has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but is passed from death over to life. Have you come to the point in your life where you've passed, made that transaction from death to life because you trusted in Christ? You believed in his death, burial, and resurrection? Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, okay, he's the boss of everything, I'm giving my life to him, I'll make him the Lord of my life, because I believe in my heart that he died for my sins, he was buried, and God raised him to the dead, what happens when you make that decision? It says you will be what? You'll be saved. Have you been saved? Have you been born again? Let's take a moment to pray right now. Could you do that with me? If you truly have been saved, you have no doubts about it, take a moment right now and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. But if you've never made that decision, you're not sure about that, I would would plead with you today to make that decision. You don't have to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you. Just right there, where you're seated, or if you're watching online, make, have, do business with God. Let him know you know that you know you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, and that he's it, and that you truly believe that he died, he was buried, he rose again just for you, and give your life to him. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you that he is the compassionate Christ, that he steps into difficult situations like funerals and does the impossible. Lord, there's no one else that we can look to that has the promise of eternal life, that can conquer the great enemy of death. So Lord, we thank you for Jesus. He conquered death by dying, and he gives us eternal life by the life he lived. And so we thank you for just the incredible unselfishness and compassion you showed on our behalf. And we give him the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're like, Gary, I hear what you're saying, but I'm still not there. Man, let's have a conversation. Let me buy you lunch or buy a cup of coffee and let's talk about the gospel and let's help you make that decision. If you wish there was someone here sitting next to you that could hear this message, take time to invite them to churches next week. They might surprise you and actually say yes. There's cards on the back tables that you can use to invite people. And even if they can't come here, they can use that QR code and hear the gospel. Uh, presentation right there from YouTube. All right. Um, Amanda's not here. So, uh, Jabari, we want to help me with Q&A? We'll do a guy this time. So, if you have a question about the Bible, about the message here today, we're going to use this microphone. Is this one okay, Matt? There you go. Text in, or if you'd rather just raise your hand, you could do that. There is a question that someone actually sent in last night. Let me find it for you. Yeah, right there, that one. And like I said, you can get busy texting a question if you have one or raise your hand. What is manna? I've heard the word but never knew what it meant. Cool. Um, so in the when the Jews were wandering in the wilderness after they were released from slavery and bondage in Egypt, they didn't have food to eat. And so God sent basically like, angel food, angel bread from heaven. Um, some people think it looked like a wafer. It was sweet. It, was, it tasted like, they never say what the ingredients were because it's it obviously miraculous. 
coriander seed, I think is what they said it tasted like, and there was like a sweetness to it, but it was just miraculous bread from heaven that God used to feed his people. And uh, anybody remember the rules for manna? Only get enough for that day, okay? And then what happens if you gather too much like the next day? Yeah, it would spoil and get worms in it, okay? Except for one day, what you could do what? You could get on before the, the Sabbath day, basically on Friday, you could get night off day for Friday and Saturday because on Saturday you didn't do any work. So it's interesting how that bread had that chemical equation to know when to do it, right? <laughs> so yeah, um, but the, just like a lot of beautiful things in the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament, who does it point to? points to Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, you think, that, you think that Moses fed you in the wilderness. I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. That was a picture of me. And so just like they were able to live by eating that bread, Jesus says, you will live for eternity if you eat of me and you partake of me. And any other questions? No? Anybody else have a question? All quiet this morning. Okay, cool. Well, let's stand and we'll pray.